come into your house for worship. Thank you for the enthusiasm of your people, the open hearts and minds of your people to receive your word and to worship you in spirit and in truth. Now speak, God, for we, your servants, listen to hear a word from on high. May your anointing fall fresh upon us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Second Samuel chapter 11, as we move forward through our series of sermons in Second Samuel, it happened in the spring of the year at the time when kings go out to battle that David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. But David remained in Jerusalem. I want to preach today from the subject, three things about sin. Three things about sin. This is one of those topics that we hear at times and we just cringe. Um, because oftentimes um, it, you know, it, it, it's a kind of a disturbing thing sometimes to talk about sin. But, 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 but it's important that we do so. And this text lifts the reasons out for us. Three things about sin. The story of David and Bathsheba is one of of two of the most well-known soap opera-like dramas in the Bible. The other story is about a man named Simon, Simon, uh, I'm sorry, Samson, and a woman named Delilah. Both stories are about mighty men of God who let their gods down and who fell victim to fatal attractions. David is now the king of Israel. You remember Judah has come together and, and, and Israel, the northern kingdom, have come together. And he's king over the entire nation now. It has been a long 15-year journey to the throne. But with God's help, David made it. Chapter 11 begins by informing us that it was in the spring of the year when kings, the Bible said, normally went out to battle. Now, in chapter 10, David had fought a tremendous battle, had been victorious, but this particular time, he decided to stay back. He sent Joab, his general. And the army of Israel out to battle while he remained at home. The Bible tells us clearly that one evening David arose from his bed and he walked out onto the roof of his palace. And from his rooftop, probably a a beautiful view of nature. Uh, But that day he saw something else. He saw a woman bathing. And verse 2 states, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. Being interested in the woman, David sent and uh, inquired about her. David asked and inquired about her, and someone said to him in verse 3, Is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? Upon finding out who she was, and more specifically, finding out that she was married, David sent some of her, his messengers who took Bathsheba and brought her back to him. And verse 4 says very candidly, very concisely, very plainly, and he lay with her. The term lay with 
projects the idea of two people lying together for the purpose of intimate contact. That's what it means when you read, read that phrase. The intimate contact, mind you, can be either consensual, that is, both parties agree, or it can be non-consensual, that is, in one case, in 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 in, this, in once in the situation that is one party protests rather or one party pushes back against the whole idea of the relationship. So the term means either consensual, two people agree, or at least one person pushes back, protests against the whole idea. Now, just a few weeks ago, a month or so ago. Uh, Pastor Harris, who leads our uh, discipleship foundational ministry, uh, was teaching us about um, reading the Bible and also studying the Bible. And he was sharing that, you know, we we read the Bible, and of course, uh, we do that for devotional purposes. He said, but when we study the Bible, we go go deeper. And to study the Bible means that we do word studies and we cross-reference and we look at what the patterns of the writers have to to say so so that's what I did in this text I I read it but I also studied it and this is what I want to I want to bring forth to you today I want to share with you three examples of what protest and pushback look like in Genesis 34 Dinah the daughter of Leah and Jacob went out to visit went out to visit some ladies. Probably these were some young friends of her. She's a young maiden, so she goes out to visit some friends. While on her outing, she caught the eye of a young man named Shechem. Shechem was the sin, a son rather, of Hamar, who was the prince of the country. His daddy had an important, powerful position. But Shechem was attracted to Dinah. In other words, her beauty captivated him. Verse 2 states, he took her, after her beauty captivated him, verse 2 says he took her, that means by force, against her will, she protested, she pushed back, she resisted, she put up a fight, but he took her and he lay with her and he violated her, he defiled her. In other words, he Forced Dinah to act against her will. That's called non-consensual. The writer of the text is careful to shine the spotlight on the non-consensual element of the relationship between Dinah and Shechem. Are you following me? All right, let's, let's go deeper. The second example is found in 2 Samuel chapter 13, where David's son Amnon, and we'll look at this more in detail when we get to this in the series, but for this point, I want to bring it out. David's son Amnon had a half-sister named Tamar. Amnon, like Shechem, had a physical attraction for Tamar. Even though she was his half-sister, he was attracted to her physically. Are you following me? He said to her in verse 11, come, here's that word again, lie with me or come lay with me. The text says, come lie with me, my sister. Now notice in the text the the protest and the pushback on Tamar's part. Verse 12, she said to him, no, my brother, do not force me. 
for no such thing should be done in Israel. What she's saying is that this sin is against God and none of our people should practice this kind of behavior. She said to him, do not do not this disgraceful thing. Verse 13. And I I were could. I'm sorry. And this would be to my shame. Verse 14. However, he would not heed her voice and being stronger than she, he forced her and he here's that phrase again lay with her he forced his way past Tamar's protest pushed back and he laid with her the right of the text makes it clear that this was what a non-consensual relationship the third example is one of my favorites in the bible is found in Genesis 39 where Joseph the young attracted Hebrew slave is serving as houseboy to Pharaoh's chief of security, a guy by the name of Pontifar. At least they called him Pontifar. Verse 7 says, Pontifar's wife cast her eyes on Joseph. That means she looked at him and she saw something in him that she liked. She was attracted to young Joseph. Pontiff's wife cast her eyes on Joseph, and she said, come lie with me. There's that word again, that phrase again. Notice the protest and the pushback in verses 8 and 9. But he refused and said to his master's wife, look, my master does not know what is in, is with me in the house. And he has committed all that he has to my hand. Verse 9, there is no one greater in this house than I. Nor has he kept back anything from me but you because you are his wife. And, and notice the pushback again and the protest. Joseph said, how can I do this wickedness and sin against God. Do you see the pushback, the, the protest, the non-consensualness here? Verse 12, she caught him by his garment saying, come lie with me. There's that phrase again. And again, notice Joseph's protest and pushback in verse 12. He left his garment in her hands. He fled and he ran outside. Are you with me? Again, the writer is careful to point out the protest and the pushback of Joseph. This was a non-consensual relationship. Now go back to the text, 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 4, and read. Then David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Surely I don't want to burst anybody's bubble or shatter anybody's uh, perceptions of Bathsheba as an innocent victim, helpless and hopelessly seduced by David, a good-looking, good, powerful, popular, prestigious, and wealthy king. But rather, I'm simply pointing out to you the reality that the precedent and style of biblical writers uh, around similar situations make the point crystal clear that there is always pushback and protest when, when in fact, there's not consensuality involved. Do you see the text? Now, regardless of what you believe about Miss Bathsheba, verse 4 calls our attention to the fact that it behooves us to God against. Here's the footnote. Here's the insight for living. It behooves each of us to God against the popular trend of making allowances 
and excuses and alibis for sin because they're easy to come by, aren't they? I mean, it's real easy to justify and make alibis. Verse 4 screams down the corridors of time, warning us in this postmodern era not to fall in the rut of making excuses for sin. Now, as I discussed verse 4 with a friend of mine last week, I, I love to do this. I have preacher friends and and, I, you know, we talk on the phone, some of them in Florida, some of them are in other places around the country, and we sermonize and we talk, and, and you know, uh, we just have a great time at this. But this preacher friend of mine, I, I, I asked him uh, about this, and we talked about this, and he, he said, you know, do you really want to go there? With the women in the country, do you really want to go there? And, and my attitude is I want to preach biblical truth. I want to uncover the text and and allow people, the Holy Spirit, after the text is uncovered, to make your own decisions. And then he went on to press his claim uh, with me. He said, well, he said Bathsheba really didn't have a choice. He said David was the king. David had power. David could have even had her killed. Now, in spite of the fact that David didn't have a mode of operation of of abusing and hurting women, he would hurt men, uh, but there's no way in there, even when when his wife Micah disrespected him, uh, the text never indicated that he he hurt her physically in any way. But, But my reaction was this, oh, really? Then explain to me how it was that Queen Vashti, in the book of Esther, chapter 1, refused to honor the request of her drunken husband, King Ahasuerus, who ordered her, and I found this interesting in the text, who sent messages to, messengers to order her to put on your crown. And I found it interesting in the text that he didn't say put on your crown and put on your finest robe and put on your clothes, but he specified just put on your crown. Just put on your crown. That's what he said. That was the order said. Put on your crown. And he, he, he sent messengers to ask her, put on your crown and to parade yourself, showing off your beauty to, to he wanted her to show off her beauty to his drunken guests. You can read it after, chapter after chapter one. That's what he said. Put, 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 have a put on a crown, and I want her to come out. He had all of these leaders, these military leaders, these, all of these diplomats, and he was drunk, and they were drunk, and, and he said, have her come out. Just put on her crown. Are y'all following me? You don't have to worry about the robe. Just put on her crown because I want them to see what I have in, in her. Well... Vashti had a choice to make, and she made the right choice by refusing to follow the king's wicked commands. A man went back to Ananias and Sapphira. You remember the story. Ananias lied. Here comes Sapphira. She had a choice to make. Sad to say she made the wrong choice. And she followed suit in death just like her husband. But Vashti made the right choice. Here's a 21st century application. You and I are faced with daily, faced with making the right choices. It's a challenge every day. We're faced with that every single day. So what if he's the CEO? So what if he signs your paycheck? 
So what if she owns the company? So what if he is the pastor? So what if she's the president and asks and begs or demands that we go against our Christian morals, values, ethics, and standards and convictions? Verse 4 of the text gives us the answer to the so what. Absolutely not. Some have said, when in Rome, do as the Romans do. But verse 4 vehemently insists, without apprehension or apology, when in Rome, do what's right. That's the message of verse 4. When in Rome, do what's right. Notice how the drama continues unfolding in verse 5. And the woman conceived, so she sent and told David and said, I am with child. And with this bomb having exploded in his face, David is now faced with a crisis. The crisis for David is, what does he do with Bathsheba's husband, Uriah? So David comes up with a plan to cover himself as well as cover his sin. After all, the last thing he wants is for his sins to find him out. Footnote. What do you think the messengers who brought Bathsheba to David in verse 4 and the messengers she sent to inform David of her pregnancy in verse 5 What do you think they are talking about? After all, some news is just too juicy to keep. And and in spite of the fact that some people are like walking newspapers anyway. Now, while David is trying to, to crisis manage the main network news, the affiliate station, i.e. the grapevine, is no doubt already in operation. So David sends for Joab, who is his commanding general. He orders Joab to have Uriah, the Hittite, Bathsheba's husband, come to him. And when Uriah came to David, David engaged, first of all, in small talk. How you doing? How are things going, uh, Uriah? How the people doing? How the soldiers doing who are under your uh, command? He said, how, how's the war going? You know how small talk goes. You know, how, you know how's things going? You know, everything all right? And, and then in verse 8, David cuts to the chase and implements his plan, ordering Uriah to go home. And the text says, wash your feet. Now, I want to say this with as much integrity and as much clarity as possible. The phrase, wash your feet, in ancient times, describes something other than washing your feet, if you know what I mean. Go back and research the phrase. It, it, mean, it, it means something completely different than wa- the phrase, than, than washing your feet. So David tells Uriah to go home, spend some time with your wife. Man, you deserve it. And to help matters along, verse 8 says, David sent a gift of food for this special occasion. But in verse 9, instead of going home, the Bible tells us Uriah slept at the door of David's house with the king's servants. What you say? When David questions him about not going home, Uriah simply replies in verse 11, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents and my Lord Joab, meaning my field commander, and the servants of my Lord Joab are encamped in the open field. So 
Shall I then go home to be with my wife, to eat and drink and lie with my wife? And, and get this, as you live, as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Do you see the protest? Do you see the pushback on behalf of Uriah? David realizes now that he has an even greater problem on his hand than he anticipated. And that's how sin unfolds, isn't it? It starts off relatively simple, but as the snowball goes, it seems to, it seems to pick up momentum and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. At first, all it was, he saw. Secondly, he sent. Then he sinned. Now he has a big problem on his hand. So it was, he tried a different strategy. David ordered Uriah to wait one more day. Then he promised he would allow this soldier to go back to battle. David proceeded to provide food and strong drink for Uriah to the point that he got Uriah drunk, which was his main objective. But verse 13, even as the drunken man, Uriah, refused to go home and sleep with his wife, the Bible says instead he slept in the presence of David's servant. You talk about a soldier, soldier. If a soldier wants to gain credibility with the troops, then stay in the field with the troops. If they're sleeping in tents and, and fighting mosquitoes, don't you sleep downtown in the hotel. Uriah was a soldier's soldier. And so in the act of desperation, David sends Uriah back to battle this uh, the next morning with a letter for Joab, his commander. Unknown to Uriah, the letter he carries was his death sentence. Verse 15 reveals the content of the letter. David wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and then retreat from him, pull back, leave him alone, leave him defenseless that he may be struck down and die. And so it was, Joab carried out the command of David and placed Uriah in the heat of the battle. In verse 17, Uriah was struck and killed. Then a messenger was sent to David and reported in verse 24, the archer shot from the wall at your service and some of the king's servants are dead and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Now David not only had committed the sin of adultery, he has added the sin of murder to his list. Do you see how participating in the initial aspect of sin digs us deeper and deeper and deeper? He would have been far better off after he saw just to turn and walk away, but he didn't. He took the next step. And so when Bathsheba heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she mourned for him. And when her mourning was over, David sent her and brought her to his house. I can't help but see that there's no pushback, there's no, there's no protest, there's no anger in the text, there's no hostility in the text. And she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Verse 27 tells us that God saw it all from beginning to end. God witnessed the act. God was aware of the plot and the plan and the cover-up. And the thing David had done displeased the Lord. So here it is, just three things about sin. First, sin is deceptive. The very nature of sin is to make us restless and mislead us into thinking that the grass is always greener 
on the other side. Sin has a deceptive way of making us feel that way. Like the grass is always greener on the, on the other side. Like the cows that you've seen and that I've seen with all the green grass under their feet, but yet stretching their necks across barbed wire fences, trying to eat grass on the other side of the fence that the farmer has put up to protect them usually from a highway or from other vicious animals. Sin has a way of of misleading us into thinking that the grass is always green on the other side of the fence. Sin's relentless mode of operation is geared towards tricking, especially Christ followers, into believing that satisfaction and contentment with what God has already blessed us with, what God has given us, is not enough. David was deceived and believing that what he saw from the top of his roof was better than what he had under his roof. And he was deceived into thinking that what he saw from the top of his roof was better than what he already had under his roof. Well, what did he have under his roof? Just briefly. Under his roof, he had seven wives. There he had Ahoniam, the Jezreelitess. He had Abigail. You remember Abigail, the, 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 the widow, the smart, the bright widow of Naaman. He had Micah, the daughter of Tamar, the king of Gershom. He had Haggith, Abitel, and Eglah. Yet he was duped, hoodwinked, fooled into thinking Food into thinking, food into thinking that Bathsheba had something different than what he already had. Help me, somebody. Yeah, as a result of this misleading notion, this erroneous belief, this foolish fantasy, this frivolous fantasy, he chased a rabbit down a trail that eventually caused him to spend far too many nights in Heartbreak Hotel. I wish I had time to kind of really just kind of work this some more. But, you know, I, I wanted, you know, it, it just, he didn't begin with the end in mind. We talked about that the Bible said, you know, one of the, one of the sure ways to, to help us not fall into sin's trap is just begin with the end in mind. Think about what this thing is going to cost me because what I see now is not what I'm going to get later. The truth is, the truth is this. There wasn't anything Bathsheba could do for David that his seven wives could not do. The fact of the matter was that one wife for David, really, one wife, the text tells us now, that he, uh, research tells us that David is, is right around 50 years old. The truth of the matter is, the fact of the matter is, the reality is, one wife, just one of those wives, Just one of those wives under his roof would have been more than enough to keep him busy. Oh, I wish I had a witness here. Well, here's a point to ponder. Here's a point to ponder. A Big Mac is a Big Mac, regardless of the McDonald's you buy it at. Am I right about it? You can buy it in China or Chicago. You can buy it in Germany or Georgia. 
You can buy it in South America or South Carolina. It's still a Big Mac. I know I'm right about it. But one day when I was, we were assigned in Germany, it was a beautiful summer. Summer was beautiful. Winters were kind of cool, cold and long and snow, but beautiful summer. And I said to my wife, Sister Pickett, I said, you know what? Uh, let's, this weekend, Saturday, let's ride over to France. Let's just ride, get in the car and ride over to France and have lunch. And so, you know, Metz, France was a, was a border town, and it wasn't too far over the German border. I mean, we had to ride a little ways, but beautiful countryside. And, and get this now, out of all the places in France to have lunch, guess where we went? McDonald's. And so I got back to the base, and I was telling some friends, I said, man, we went to France, and we, and we you know, they said, yeah, where'd you eat? I said, we ate at McDonald's. I said, man, you went all the way to France to eat at McDonald's. You could have eaten at McDonald's here. But needless to say, the food tasted the same as it had in all the other McDonald's restaurants I had ever eaten. Why? Because a Big Mac is a Big Mac. An order of fries is an order of fries. An apple pie from McDonald's is an apple pie. You can put ice cream on it. You can put raisins on it. You can put apples on it. You can put whatever you can have with coffee, you know, hot chocolate, whatever it is. But the bottom line, the main thing, the main thing is that it's an apple pie, and it's the same apple pie that you're going to get at any McDonald's that you go to, made with the same ingredients, and get this, get this, get this. It will satisfy your appetite. I want y'all to, if you got young sons, young daughters, teach them that. It will satisfy your appetite. So sin is deceptive. But secondly, sin is deadly. That is to say that when, whenever we willingly and knowingly participate in sinful practices or behavior, it leads to some type of death. Verse 17, then the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the people of the service of David fell. And Uriah the Hittite, I underlined in my notes, died also. Verse 24, the archer shot from the wall at the service, and some of the king's servants are dead. And your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. Verse 26, when the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she moaned for him. Notice what James says concerning this matter to the 12 tribes of Israel. James 1, 14 and 15, but each one who is tempted. When he is drawn away. Now, notice James didn't say that being tempted is the sin. But he said when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed, then when de desire is conceived, he says, then it gives birth to sin. And sin, James said, when it is full-blown, produces or bring forth death. Wherever there is sin, there is always some type of death. It may not always be physical, but sometimes it'll be death of a relationship, death of a marriage, death of, of morals and values. Death always follows sin. 
David's adulterous relationship with Bathsheba set off a chain of reactions of death in his life. In chapter 12, uh, verse 18, David and Bathsheba, firstborn son, dies. In chapter 13, David's son Amnon is murdered by his half-brother Absalom. In chapter 18, verse 9, David's son Absalom is killed. And in case anybody doesn't see the scriptural connection between these deaths and David. Sin, let me help you. Back in chapter 12, Nathan the prophet goes to David with a word from God. The word is this in verse 10. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. The sword is a symbol of what? Of death. Therefore, when David heard Nathan's prophecy, he knew that because of his sin, death would take a ravishing toll upon his household. Begin with the end in mind. This text serves as a monumental reminder to the 21st century church. It's a reminder to those of us who preach the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. It's a reminder to those of us who hold various leadership positions in God's church. It's a reminder to all who occupy pews, who pray, who sing, who shout that sin is deadly and no one is is exempt from the death sentence of sin. The death of a family relationship, the death of trust, the death of respect, the death of honor, the death of self-esteem, the death of joy in the Lord, and even sometimes physical death, as in the case of David and Bathsheba, is all due to sin. Third and finally, sin displeases no, no matter who it is, David was a king called by God as a man after his own heart. But the Bible said this thing David did displeased God. The thing David had done displeased God. As Christians, pleasing God should be our number one priority. As a pastor, as a preacher, as a husband, as a father, my number one objective is to please God. I love to have affirmation when I preach, but but that's that's not the most important thing. I love to have people say, Pastor, that was a good sermon, and that's how it works, and it works for me. But my number one goal is not to please people with soft preaching but to preach the truth and please God. It ought to be your number one priority on your job, in your home, in your community, to please God. When we think about what Jesus suffered on Calvary's cross to save us from our sins and our wretchedness, it's more than enough motivation or should be more than enough motivation to please God. He sacrificed Jesus' body. Jesus shed his blood. And because he rose from the grave with all power in his hands and because his spirit lives in us, our charge ought to be to please him. As I close, I love the devotion to pleasing God in the words of the hymn writer who penned these words. A charge to keep I have and a God to glorify. 
who gave his son my soul to save and fit it for the sky. To serve the present age is my calling to fulfill. Get this. Oh, man, all my powers engage not to please society, not to please people, not to go along just to get along. Though it, all my powers engage to do what? My master's will. Good hope, that's our charge. That's our challenge, to do our master's will. We want to be a church known for doing our master's will. We may build bigger buildings. We may raise more money. We may have big budgets, but let it be known throughout the community, throughout the world, that good hope's charge is to please God, to do our master's will. 